welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have some great stuff in store for you. I'm joined by Dr. Kaylin O'Connor, who's an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of California, Irvine, who's going to talk to us about misinformation, disinformation, and how incredibly important those are in the time of COVID. I also have a very brief monologue on Tucatnib in her to climb. I have a couple of questions, which I think cut to the heart of the clinical trial. But first, this is our semi-annual pledge drive. That's right. Every year, twice a year, you can count on us and NPR for doing the same thing, which is asking you to support us. In this case, on Patreon.com. Why should you support this podcast? Well, because right now, we have no one else. We have you supporting this podcast, and otherwise, we might someday decide not to do that. So if you enjoy this podcast, you should go to Patreon.com and support us. This is our semi-annual pledge drive. It'll run for the next four weeks, and then... We won't bother you about it until later this year. So, on that positive note, we turn to our brief discussion of Tecatinib. All right, let me talk about her to climb. This is a randomized control trial of Tucatnib, Trastuzumab, and Zolota for HER2 positive breast cancer versus placebo, Trastuzumab, and Zolota. It's all Zolota now, you critics. This randomized trial shows a PFS benefit and an OS benefit. It preferentially enriches with patients with brain metastases and allows people who have been treated with one or more prior lines of therapy to enroll in this study. And it's gotten a lot of praise because a while back the FDA said, you know, an unmet medical need is we don't have enough drugs for cancer patients who also have brain mats. That's often an exclusion criteria wrongfully so, from randomized control trials and pivotal studies. And this study goes the other way. They try to enrich with patients who have brain metastases. And FDA likes that, and they've been celebrating that. And that's a good thing. You know, we want to have drugs that work in brain metastases. I read through this study, and I guess I just had a couple of questions. Number one, you know, I was going to say something different, but then I was like, oh, I wonder if they have a medical writer. And of course they do. Blah, 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 medical communications for writing support during the development and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah from the company for critical review and revision of the manuscript. Oh, great. Bravo. Another trial where you get a medical writer support, which as we all know, is something we use across academia. Philosophy professors get the philosophy writer. Um, you know, uh, oncologists get the medical writer. Um, geologists get a geology writer. You know, I also realized that if the justification is, you know, well, medical writers communicate the facts of the trial more eloquently, um, then, you know, why are we just letting trialists get up there and take the microphone at these conferences? Why don't we get the medical speaker? Um, there are some people out there who are spectacular orders, and no offense, trialists, there's some of you who are really awful. And I've been watching some videos, and I'm like, wow. Even on video, this is awful. Um, so why don't we get somebody who's charismatic and knows how to speak and knows how to pronounce words correctly like Zalota? Um, that's, a, that's a shout out to you know who you are, you people who hate how I say Cape Cytobine. Okay, so this clinical trial, randomized control trial, they got the OS, they got the PFS. What can a guy like me complain about? I guess 
they look like they've gotten adequate prior treatment, 100% got trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and TDM1. Is that possible? The one thing I have difficulty reconciling with is the fact that the percentages of people who received all three of those drugs is so, so high, but yet you can enroll after just one prior line of therapy, which in my mind would make it difficult to have also gotten TDM1. Uh, so if somebody could explain to me how that's happening, that somebody got potentially trastuzumab, pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting, but then TDM1 when they first had metastatic disease, and that had to happen all the time um, for anybody who's enrolling with one prior line of therapy, it seems a bit of a coincidence, but... I guess anything's possible. Of course, it's enriched with patients with uh, brain metastasis or history of metastasis at baseline. That's about 47% of the total population. And it's good that the trial is going after that population. So what's bad about it? Oh, I found it. There's one thing that's quite bad about it. When you do this study, what you want to do is we want drugs for people with brain metastases. We want to have efficacious drugs for women with HER2-positive breast cancer and brain metastases. That's what we want. Let me put it another way. For a woman with HER2-positive breast cancer and brain metastases, we want a drug that's efficacious beyond all of the efficacious things we already have. And what's missing is that beyond part. Because it turns out that among the nearly half of people with brain mets on this study... About a quarter had untreated brain mets in the control arm. Now, if you give somebody Zolota and Trastuzumab, that's not going to do a great job of crossing the blood-brain barrier. So only the treatment arm with Tucatinib, the small molecule, is going to have a shot at actually crossing the blood-brain barrier and treating that untreated brain met. Um, treated and progressing, about a third of the brain mets on this study had received some treatment, presumably surgery or SBRT, but they're having documented progression. And again, they go on a control arm where they're not getting further brain-directed therapy. They're getting trastuzumab and Zolota and placebo. See, this is not how we do things. If somebody had received stereotactic radiation to the brain and it had been six months and then there was progression, uh, of course, there's this big discussion of whether or not that change in radiographic imaging is actually due to uh, a response to the radiotherapy or if in fact it has finally progressed after it has previously responded. But in those situations, we would often consider, we've talked to radiation oncologist, and they may be a candidate for additional radiotherapy, potentially even a surgery. Certainly if somebody who's untreated should definitely get a consultation with a radiation oncologist or potentially a surgeon. So I think the real question in this trial is, are there women in the control arm who have brain metastases that are progressing or untreated, who in any normal setting would be getting surgery or radiotherapy, who are not getting that in this control arm and getting a placebo and two drugs that don't have terrific blood-brain barrier penetration, while the intervention arm gets to give a small molecule drug that does have blood-brain barrier penetration? Because if that's the trial you're running, you're running a straw man trial that is beneath the standard of care that would be acceptable in anyone's clinic that would give you a benefit and allow you to pat yourself on the back and say you've approved a new drug for women with brain metastases, but you haven't really proven that your drug is better than what the best care we can do. And you've taken 202 people on the control arm and you've deprived them of best available therapy, which is a deep ethical failure, 
So maybe somebody might want to explain that to me as to what exactly is going on in this study. And maybe you all want to take a good look at that because obviously we need a lot more information. You know, somebody could be having a progressive brain lesion and it would no longer be amenable to radiotherapy. That's certainly a situation, but oftentimes it can be. And we need a lot more to know for sure. But certainly the untreated brain meds, again, we need to see exactly what's going on because I have a strong feeling that a good radiation oncologist might want to treat many of those and a good neurosurgeon might want to go in and operate in some of these situations. Anyway, that's the bottom line question. These people with brain metastases on this study or those who develop brain metastases while on this study do they have access to the absolute best consultation from neurosurgery and radiation oncology as we provide in our clinics every day in this study? And I guess when I read the supplement and I found that about one in four of the people with brain mess were untreated and put on a control arm where you know they're not going to get an efficacious CNS agent, and then one in three of the women with brain metastases are progressing, have progressive brain metastases, and they, again, are being put on a control arm where they're not going to get an effective CNS agent, one wonders if that is really the best care we can provide. And, you know, the fact that this is a trial that is offered and run with the strong incentive of gaining market share and a huge rainfall of money and all of the sorts of things I see all the time with clinical trials gives me additional reason to be a little bit doubtful that this control arm was really the best available care we could provide. And if you don't provide the best available care, you're not asking the right question. You could run a different trial for women who have progressive disease, primarily CNS disease, and run even to catnip versus investigator choice where um, radi the radiation oncologist might have exhausted op options and there might not be a great investigator choice. You could run that in a ladder line, but this is the trial they chose to run. And so when you run a trial like this, you got to give your control arm the best available care. And I just don't know that that's the case. And if somebody might want to explain to me how 100% of people are getting trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and TDM1 and some people have gotten one prior line of therapy. So that means that everybody who's gotten one prior line of therapy in the metastatic setting had to have gotten trastuzumab, pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, and then they had to have gotten TDM1 for their frontline metastatic treatment. Is that possible? Is that possibly the case that that happened with invariably that happened. It must've happened in every single instance where somebody enrolled with one prior metastatic line of therapy. Somebody's got to, got to think about that because one would think that just by chance alone, there's going to be somebody who didn't get TDM1. Okay. But, um, that's a question for another day because there's no smoking gun. There's just a little bit of a wisp of smoke in the air. That's all I see here. And I think people should look more closely. And in cases like this, you know, the way to settle this is it's real simple. The trial should just allow, in a de-identified manner, the scans to be provided of all 291 women with brain metastases at baseline. Show us the MRIs of the brain. Show us which ones were treated and stable. Show us which ones were treated and progressing. And tell us how many months ago did that person have radiotherapy to the brain? Because if it were more than six months ago, I think there are many radiation therapists who'd be willing to give it another go. And show us the images of the women with untreated brain mets that you're allowing to enroll in your study who have never had radiotherapy to those mets. And let us be the judge of whether or not we think it would be appropriate to leave such a met untreated. And unless you do that, 
there's going to be a little question mark in my mind about this study. So on that positive note, we're going to turn to a great interview with Kaylin O'Connor, Associate Professor of Philosophy, with a focus on misinformation, disinformation, and what exactly the difference between those two is, and how this is relevant in an age of social media where the wrong ideas seem to run rampant. You won't want to miss this discussion, so stay tuned. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Google Meet with uh, Dr. Kaylin O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor is uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Irvine, and she is a specialist in philosophy of science and philosophy of logic, and has done a lot of very interesting stuff on misinformation, disinformation, and how it spreads in social networks. Um, so it's a real pleasure to have her on. Uh, Dr. O'Connor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. I think I was telling you before we started that you're probably our first, uh, you know, philosopher of science. Um, so, of course, you know, um, probably most of the people who have been on this show are people who are clinicians or physicians who may have an interest in health policy. Um, but, you know, I know we have a lot of overlap in our interests because we met at a conference before. Um but I wonder if you might take listeners through a little bit about what exactly is a philosopher of science? What do you spend your time thinking about? And how did you get into it? Yeah, so most people have never heard of philosophy of science. <laughs> it's a little subfield of philosophy where people think about a lot of different things. But one of the main things people think about is how does science work? Um, what makes effective science? How, do, how does knowledge progress? How do we create knowledge as scientists? Um, I got into this field, uh, I, I didn't have a background in philosophy, I had a background in biology and filmmaking, but was always really interested in sort of the bigger questions having to do with with uh, biology, and was interested in kind of marrying the humanities and the sciences, and so ended up doing this. I see. So your 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 undergraduate work was not in philosophy then, you moved to this in your graduate work. No, actually, my undergrad degree was in filmmaking, really? visual and critical studies, they called it. Yep, yep. And I had not studied philosophy before I went to grad school. But and in fact, if anyone had told me, like, someday you will be a philosopher, I would have told them, like, shut up, I will not. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> but then I found out about philosophy of science and just thought it was a really fascinating field because it's so flexible. I mean, you can learn and about things in the sciences and work on them. You can learn about big philosophical problems and use methods from the sciences to address these big philosophical problems. Uh, yeah. So now, now I'm a philosopher. I see. So yeah, now, now you're, you're definitely a philosopher now. Um, but that's, that's gotta be a very interesting transition, but you had background in biology as well. And in addition to filmmaking. That's right. I studied biology as well. And does filmmaking play any role in what you do now? Because I know, you know, you write books, you write articles, but do, do, is there any role for the visual media? Well, so actually, I think a lot of the lessons from filmmaking have been tremendously useful as an academic. So just to give an example, one of the things that was hardest to learn was how to cut things that you've spent a lot of time in a film. And that you absolutely have to do that to make a good film because you, you know, you're creating a narrative and some things you might spend a lot of time trying to get it to go and it just doesn't fit. And in the end, you have to say goodbye to it. So learning how to structure a narrative, how to be kind of brutal with your own work, 
how to just say like goodbye to things that aren't working, really think about what is working. All of that is really important to giving talks, to communicating about science, also to writing papers. Course, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, so a lot of the kind of bigger lessons did translate. Uh, that's, that's a really great observation. I think um, it's something that's hard to teach people, but um, the thing that you love the most um, that you think is so clever, sometimes that has to be cut uh, in the purpose of a broader uh, article or essay. And that's hard for, I think, junior people to really figure out. But at some point you learn that and sometimes you save those scraps and maybe someday turn it into something. Yeah, I mean, with students, I'll sometimes say, like, I just want you to take this paper and cut it down by a third mm -hmm. and like, be and often it makes the paper better yeah. just saying the extras. Oh, that's that's very interesting. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, sort of and it has a lot to do with where we are now. Um, so I was reading this really interesting article that you wrote about hydroxychloroquine and the polarization of science. And I, and you probably haven't listened to this, but there was a guest on this podcast, uh, maybe the last episode, Waleed Jalad, and he made a point which is that, you know, ever since Trump, you know, stuck his nose into hydroxychloroquine, it's turned it into a political football. If you don't like Trump, you want to see it fail. And if you do like Trump, you want to see it succeed. And that's problematic because the rules that govern the success or failure of this drug, ultimately, they don't have to do with Trump. And he could be right for the wrong reasons or he could be wrong for the right reason. You know, he could he could screw up. Uh, he could be wrong about it um, or he could be right about it, but he's certainly right about it for the wrong reasons. So, so that's the point he was making. And your article kind of probes this as well, which is that there are you know, certainly more and more ideas, especially in the time of COVID, whether it's reopening the economy or, you know, maintaining lockdown, whether it's hydroxychloroquine or waiting for the clinical trials that are increasingly becoming polarized and political and tied to our political beliefs. Um, how do you think about this topic um, from, from your vantage and, and what were, you know, you're trying to get across in this, you know, really wonderful essay in the Boston Review? Yeah, so I've been finding this polarization over COVID and especially over scientific things about COVID to be kind of bizarre and fascinating. So along with a co-author, Jim Weatherall, who's my colleague here at UCI, we had written a paper before looking at um, what we call like epistemic factions or belief factions, which are these situations where you have groups of people and they have multiple polarized beliefs. So we see that in the U.S., between um, liberal and conservative, mm -hmm. where same people who think that evolutionary theory works also believe that um, gun regulation will right. work. Okay. And right. yeah, yeah. Interesting combos, right. Yeah, and, and so a lot of people have argued that ideology grounds these clusters of belief, that there's some deep underlying ideology that explains why groups of people hold these multiple polarized beliefs. But we thought a lot of these things just seemed kind of random, that maybe there wasn't some deep underlying ideology unifying these sets of beliefs, but rather it was kind of accidents of history where these beliefs get attached to a certain group and they become signals of group membership, part of your identity, but there isn't some particular way that they all go together. And then when we watched this emerging polarization over hydroxychloroquine, we thought, well, here is the perfect example of that claim, right? There's absolutely nothing about thinking that hydroxychloroquine is or is not an effective treatment for COVID that has anything to do with liberal or conservative ideology or politics or you know any of the beliefs that a liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican might hold, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we see polarization emerging in this case 
And the reason we see it emerging is this very prominent Republican, mm-hmm. Donald Trump, who is um, hated by many Democrats, started, uh, you know, endorsing what am I trying it. To yeah. yeah. So talking about all the benefits and how great it was, um, he didn't really have a lot to you know, He was making a lot of claims that were unsupported, over enthusiastic, probably. Um, and so it gets attached to conservative views even though there's nothing conservative about it yeah that's really that's really well put um i've often wondered why you know the political parties have this sort of canon of thinking um and and if you really think about it from a logical point of view they don't always go together and they're not always make sense but they certainly are clusters and i can see within those groups that if you agree with six out of ten things um you know there's this idea people really want you to agree with all of them or get the hell out you know there's kind of this kind of whipping maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong about that but you can tell me but i guess one thought that you know one thing you said in in one of the things you wrote which i i can't i'm having a tough, tough trouble remembering where i read it but i know you said it was that there's some beliefs where if you're just wrong about there's no practical difference for your life that day or the next day. Like, if you don't believe that we are a product of evolution, um, you know, uh, we may quibble with that, especially those of us who've spent a lot of time in science. But at the end of the day, you're going to go out on Tuesday and do the exact same things you did on Monday, presumably. It's not going to affect your life. But if you don't believe in things like climate change or you don't believe in um, or you start to have some sort of delusions and conspiracy theories, you don't think COVID is real, that can really affect you. And so I guess, how do you conceptualize the difference between, you know, beliefs that are part of maybe our identity or what we think and these beliefs that have sort of a real, I don't know, tangible grasp on what we do? Well, yeah, the way we've usually thought about this is something like, okay, we've got, as you say, we've got these different beliefs that have different consequences mm-hmm. or level consequence for us. So some that we're really never going to hit any practical mm-hmm. consequences. And, you know, believing in evolution is the perfect example. Even things like um, believing in the safety of vaccines, you know, most people who don't vaccinate never see the consequences because of herd immunity. And even things like climate change, there's this very long delay in the consequences of not acting on climate change and also a kind of distribution of the effects, mm-hmm. right? Of, so it's not like I make this choice today, I see the consequences today. Other things, you know, the consequences hit us right away. Uh, if you inject yourself with Lysol, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're going to see the consequences just right at that moment. So um, we sort of expect there to be more polarization, more social nonsense surrounding beliefs where there aren't these really clear, immediate consequences. Um, because these are places where there's there's a lot of room for the social incentives to play a stronger role in determining what people believe or say they believe, mm. right? So it's very important to me to single signal my in-group membership, say my political in-group membership. I can do that by saying I don't believe in evolution and never see a real-world consequence. If I do that by injecting myself with Lysol, it's it's a lot right, worse for me. Right. So part of what's been a little weird about COVID from our point of view is that we've seen polarization over beliefs about the dangers and um, actual behaviors regarding uh, the risks you take, these sort of political polarizations over that. And that surprised me. I actually did not expect that to happen. I would have thought this is a case where the dangers are so manifest and the consequences follow so quickly. So if I go out without a mask today and I get sick, 
I might be in a hospital in two right. weeks that I would have expected polarization right. to emerge. Right. And yet we do see it. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I guess the, the sort of idea of your theory is that the more removed you are from, you know, the, the real fist in the stomach kind of impact of your beliefs, the more distant mm. that is from you, the more likely it is that that can be part of sort of a social identity. And you don't, you know, you don't bear any consequence of, but the more it's like, you know, if you stop believing at red lights, you're going to get, you know, one political party stops uh, ignoring all the lights, they're going to get in car accidents like that day. And so, you know, they're quickly going to have to figure out, you know, are we going to abide by these lights or something like that? Or if you stop believing in gravity or something like, you know, very life or death, very obvious. Um, yeah, another way to put it is like if the world pushed back really strong, yeah. it's harder to hold false beliefs. I see. Now, I mean, one of the most intriguing things here, and and you did like such a marvelous job about it in your in your essay and a couple of the essays, is you spend a lot of time thinking about the difference between, you know, disinformation campaigns where there's maybe some external faction like Putin or some 500-pound Russian in a, in a, on a computer who is trying to sow doubt and seed division in another country. And that's the disinformation. Then there's misinformation, like, I don't know, believing that COVID uh, is produced by 5G cell phone towers or something like that. Um, or this pizza parlor is where Hillary Clinton has some, I don't know, some, some criminal ring in this pizza parlor. Um, and then there are beliefs that you know, there was a case, there's an anecdote of somebody who took hydroxychloroquine and did better. And, you know, we in medicine know that that's not a controlled clinical study. That's not really reliable. You can't hang your hat on that. And you're very cautious to say that that sort of belief, even if it's wrong, it's not in the same buckets as these other two things. So I'm wondering if you might take us through sort of how you think about these things conceptually and why it's important to, you know, not just call everything the same thing. Yeah, this is really good. I mean, one of the things that I think is most challenging in dealing with misinformation, and I mean this writ very broadly, the kind of stuff that's causing false beliefs on the internet and in other places, um, is that there's a lot of variety in how it works and what it consists in, which makes it super hard to define. And so I've seen a lot of people in the social sciences and in philosophy trying to come up with a good definition of fake news or a good right. definition of misinformation. But in almost every case, I think the reality just it pushes too hard against the boundaries. Um, because, for example, say you even just say something that sounds very uncontroversial, like misinformation involves false claims. You know, right. so you say right. that. But then I can find hundreds of cases of misinformation that involve true claims that are just being shared out of context. Mm -hmm. for, for example, or disinformation that involves true claims shared out of context. So if I were a propagandist and I was trying to get you to believe that cigarettes are safe, I could say to you, um, I know 50 people who have smoked cigarettes and none of them have gotten lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And that could be a true statement that is nonetheless a misleading statement. Right. So we have these cases where there are true statements that are misleading. So how do we class those into misinformation? We have all these cases where you have, say, a, a picture or a video. It might be just a picture or just a video shared out of context. It might be a picture with a couple words, um, and it might actually lead you to have very false beliefs, but there's nothing, it's very hard to say what makes it misinformation. And these cases that you're talking about, where there is actual scientific controversy, or there has recently been scientific controversy. So what is the true matter of fact is not necessarily known. 
and you have information that might be misleading or might not be misleading. One case we've been really interested in with regards to this, which I know you've worked on in the past, are these cases where uh, there are scientific claims that are plausible and are maybe supported by the evidence, but then they turn out not to be mm -hmm. true. And so at the moment they turn out not to be true, does that mean that the claim becomes misinformation at that moment, even though, you know, a day before it wasn't misinformation and it's going to be spreading in exactly the same way, shared by the exact same people with the exact same evidence? And so there, there, there are just these really messy boundaries, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely, I mean, that really resonates with me. And I don't know if it resonates with other people the same degree, but I'll just tell you a little bit like just this is a tangential, but I'll tell you why it resonates with me. You know, in medicine, one of the things that people have studied a lot is a financial bias and financial conflict. So, for instance, if you look at 100 uh, oncologists like myself and you look at the ones who are getting payments from AstraZeneca and it turns out it's going to be a bunch of them, maybe 60 percent, and they're getting like 10 grand a year from AstraZeneca, they're going to prescribe AstraZeneca drugs more than other brands and they're going to prescribe them when the evidence is weaker. And there are all these kinds of studies. And one of the things I often hear back when people when we, we I've done some of this work um, is people say that, well, there are other types of biases, too. There's an intellectual bias like you could like, um, I don't know, certain classes of drugs or you could have certain views that are sort of an intellectual bias. And, and one of the things that I've tried to do is I so I'm a little bit skeptical of this idea or, you know, but you're a philosopher, maybe you know better than me. But one of the things I try to do is like I try to study this and I was like, OK, what's the definition of intellectual bias? When is a belief an intellectual bias, like so Barack Obama wanted people to have health care. Uh, then he, he wants to have health care because he's previously said that he's on record of believing health care is a good. So is he just adhering to what he said before? And I think the more you try to like do research and classify it and actually come up with some rules, it's really, really hard to separate what's intellectual bias from just what people happen to believe. Um, and, and, and that's different than the financial biases where you can you know easily look and measure the money and that kind of thing. I mean, I guess the, the question really is that like one of the things is it's... Um, it's easy to talk as if you can delineate two things, but when you actually have to kind of code data or sort, you know, uh, news stories on the internet and come up with rules and that are reproducible, I think it's, in my experience, a lot, lot harder to tease things apart. And it sounds like that's part of what um, has led you to come to believe that, um, you know, that separating what exactly is misinformation um, is not intuitive and is tricky. It's tricky. I mean, the way I like to think of it is whenever you talk about any of these categories, disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, fake news, you can find really paradigm cases of them. So you can find things that like very much fit with those notions, but then you can pretty much always also find other examples that are going to push on the boundaries. You know, is it disinformation or misinformation? I don't, you know, it's not totally clear. Is it misinformation or just possibly misleading or even is it like a well- like a fair, well-grounded claim. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, you know, the hydroxychloroquine is such an interesting example because, um, you know, one of the points is like, if you, if, when you want to figure out if it works or not, we, the best way to do it, of course, is we randomize people to get it or not get it. And in order to do that study, if people think, um, it's going to cause cardiac arrhythmia and death, which is kind of um, a narrative that I believe is being pushed by some people just because they don't like Trump. 
um, and it's, those harms of the drug are exaggerated, well, now suddenly people are reluctant to enroll in my randomized trial. On the other hand, mm. when Trump goes out there and he says, this is the greatest thing, you know, you'd be crazy not to take it, what do you got to lose? As he likes to say, people are not willing to randomize in the study because they think it's going to work. And so the irony mm. of this like polarization is on both sides, they're making it harder for us to figure out if this damn drug works. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, I think is super interesting here that this, you know, uh, old um, malaria and rheumatoid arthritis and lupus drug um, has become a political football. Who would have ever guessed that this would have happened? Right. You just couldn't predict it. And as you're pointing out, one of the problems that's emerging is that it's made it very hard to just do good science mm -hmm. on this drug because everything uh, is perceived as politicized because, as you point out, it affects the samples that you can get, what people are going to be willing to take it or not take it under which um, conditions. I also am seeing a lot of, so someone will uh, gather some data about hydroxychloroquine and then someone else will respond to it as if it's not normal scientific data, but politically motivated right. data. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's I, I've seen that too. It's also kind of uh, really problematic. Now, one of the things that um, I noticed about your work is um, you have been using the modeling methods of infectious disease modelers for years yeah. and years. Um, you were way ahead. Um, and, and, and the context you've used it is fundamentally different. And here we're talking about, and you can do a better job explaining than me, but these kind of simplified models where you assume that there are people out there at risk. There's a certain group of people who have it. There's a certain group of people who are able to transmit and the transmissibility is at a certain sort of rate. Um, and you can model how infectious disease spreads. And you have used that to model how beliefs spread or how if false information can spread in social networks. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about how you got interested in that and how uh, has that helped you sort of sort through all the COVID models? Because you've been doing this kind of modeling for years. Uh, it has helped a little bit. Yeah. So this area, the kind of you know most broad description of it is right network modeling, mm -hmm. where the idea is that you um, you model individuals as nodes and then connections between them as vertices in a network, so links between them. Um, and a lot of these models were developed to study the spread of disease because the idea is that the links somehow track some kind of social connection where people could come in contact with each other. So they tell you which individuals can spread a disease to which other individuals. But if you look even at the earliest papers in this area, often they'll say something like, we're studying the spread of a virus or an idea. They just toss in there, oh, it also mm -hmm. could represent Because these same kind of social ties where people are coming in contact with each other are ways that a disease could spread, but also a belief could spread. So we get most of our beliefs because other people tell them to us. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't find most things out by ourselves. Um, and so you can use these same models to look at how does an idea say, I mean, here's just one little example. There was um, this preprint that went up, I think, back in, it might have been late January or February, uh, claiming that they had found these bits of sequence in the COVID uh, RNA that looked like HIV mm -hmm. and suggested it's manufactured it in the lab. Yeah. Manufactured, maybe using HIV. Um, so 
you can use a model, a network model to say, okay, that idea originates at some spot in the network, a team of researchers have it, and then it starts spreading throughout the network. And then people start sharing it on social media, it's spreading further and further. And that can be a very effective tool for thinking about how ideas, including scientific ideas spread. So I've, I've found it to be a very useful framework, actually. That's interesting. And I guess one of the things that, you know, you've said in some of your writings is that um, uh, social media has changed the game a little bit for how ideas spread, um, that it is fundamentally different than how it spread when, uh, you know, I think about, you know, probably because we're of the same generation, when you and I were growing up, you know, I would I always joke with people that, you know, when you d disagreed with somebody about something like uh, who was the fifth president of the U.S., you would have to live with the disagreement. You wouldn't be able to get an answer, certainly not in the near future, unless you go to the library two weeks later and then, you know, you could try to track it down. Um, so on the one hand, it's accelerated like the ability to fact check. But on the other hand, it's amplified and accelerated the ability to be told things that are, you know, bullshit or totally wrong. Um, and and you've thought about this, too, and 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 the implications for what it means about sort of erroneous facts. I'm wondering if you might share some of those thoughts. Yeah, well, first, can I just say yeah. that with friends now often advocate that we have old fashioned arguments where we just disagree about matters of fact for some <laughs> length of time. But instead, we just argue the, you know, yeah. back like in the 90s yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That I mean, I think that I miss that. <laughs> so in general, I think there's something that, that really surprised a lot of people. So the advent of the internet, I think many people thought, oh, great, no one will ever be wrong again. <laughs> right. Because now everyone will have all the information available in the entire world at their fingertips. And then we've shockingly found out, not only is that not true, if anything, there seem to be these dynamics going on that lead to um, massive numbers of people being misinformed about many, many topics as a result of social media. So pulling apart what's going on, uh, there's a number of factors going on. So one thing has to do with the kind of swiftness of spread of beliefs. So there's this old saying, I can't remember who said it, but like a rumor can be halfway across the world while the truth is just putting on its shoes. <laughs> a lot of that on social media, just rumors get going, whoosh, they spread across the world um, because of the speed of connections that can happen really quickly. We're seeing... You know, when we talk about um, propagandists, these malicious actors who are trying to control what other people believe, whether that's the Russian government, members of the tobacco industry or oil and gas, certain um, other political actors, they now have access to people in a way that they didn't have access before. Mm -hmm. So it used to be hard to communicate with people. Now it's very, very easy to communicate with people. Um, you can find them on every social media site. You can go on there and pretend to be someone you're not, pretend to be a trusted peer who someone might trust. Um, so there are all of those factors causing problems. Other things that are causing problems have to do with the way people can curate what they see on social mm -hmm. media. It's not that you have to sit down to, if you want the news, you know, it used to be you had to sit down and listen to these, you know, major news shows that everyone would have to watch. Now you don't have to do that. You can pick whatever news sites you like. You can pick whatever you know groups appeal to you. And so in a way, if you're someone who 
holds false beliefs or believes a conspiracy theory, um, you can really protect those false beliefs via the media environment that you curate for yourself. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, if you if you had false beliefs, in, you know, when we were growing up, uh, you'd have a hell of a time to find 10 people with the same false belief. Now you can easily find 50 people with whatever crazy belief you want um, on the Internet. And in that way, I think uh, I, I find it actually troublesome that it's uniting people who have sort of crazy ideas. I wonder if you've thought about, um, you know, to me, I'm very interested in like how vaccines became this thing, this like such a a strange bedfellows too, where you have some really wealthy left-wing kind of people who are sort of anti-vax and also some mm. often uh, right-wing people who are poor and more rural areas, also anti-vax. So it's like the suburbs and, and like rural areas. And, and this idea that like vaccines and are linked to autism, I just think is to me, it's become, it's really, ta- I mean, obviously taken on a life of its own. It has huge implications, but to me, it's just so interesting, like, why would that be the, why was that the thing that sort of ignited? You know, why, why wasn't it, um, you know, hot dogs cause balding? I mean, you know, why wasn't it some other crazy association? Why was it this vaccines autism thing that really took off and, and now has a life of its own? And now I think, I don't know, I mean, maybe you know better than me, but I, I struggle to know how to correct it because I don't know if fact-based correction is the right way or, you know what. So I wonder, have you looked at sort of this kind of constellation of beliefs and and how it fits? Yeah, I have thought about vaccination a good amount. I mean, it's a very weird case because it's so widespread. And unlike many other of the most kind of widespread, sticky false beliefs, it does not seem to be that there are some like industrial or pharmaceutical actors who are doing the main push here, right? skepticism, we can say that's been driven a lot by the work of oil and gas. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's not what's going on with vaccines. Not that there's someone who's trying to get people like um, to be skeptical about the science here. Uh, Instead, it's mostly driven by true believers, you know, parents who are trying to protect their children, who are trying to protect other people's children, who are genuinely afraid that like children are being hurt by vaccines. Um, but as you point out, you know, why this belief, why isn't it antibiotic skepticism that's so widespread or why aren't people really skeptical about the benefits of casts when kids break (laughs) their, right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's a little hard to say. I mean, I think one thing that's going on is that there's something upsetting and frightening about having your children vaccinated. I mean, you take them and then someone sticks them with a needle and and they're really, right. Yeah. It's a it's a really unpleasant thing. So I think that might explain in mm-hmm. part why this particular one, why it's been such a sticky kind of case. Um, and it also might be some accidents of history. You know, a lot of these kinds of false beliefs that spread and stick around, there's no particular reason it's that one and not something else. It's that, you know, mm-hmm. some people started saying this was true. They convinced other people it was true. Um, they convinced other people it was true. In this case, it's very easy to get what you might think looks like compelling evidence of the link between vaccine and autism, but isn't. So someone vaccinates their child and then their child develops autism, right? And so because there's this time sequence yeah. link, like a causal link, even though if you do a real study, right. you know there is no causal link there. So there are these very compelling stories, like I had my beautiful baby, 
I gave them the MMR vaccine. And then, the, you know, people will say things like the light went out of his eyes. Uh, he never looked at me again. Um, these kind of stories that people spread from like parent to parent and they, they are compelling, even though they're not actually good evidence. So Sorry, I'm kind of yelling. No, that's all. There's that's great. I mean, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, it sounds like to me like what you're isolating is that you know maybe maybe we've understated that 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 actually watching your child get the vaccine is a little bit traumatic for parents, and so that they kind of anchoring onto that too. I think the excellent point you're making is that there are sort of forced moves in design, you know, moves in design space that just get kind of anchored. They're just historical accidents that get a life of its own, and that might be part of it. And then um, yeah, these anecdotes are so so powerful. Um, and and this kind of maybe a little bit of change of topic, but like, you know, I'm I often struggle with these anecdotes because, um, you know, I'm somebody who thinks a lot about like data and how you make sense of claims. And I don't put a lot of stock in anecdotes generally. And, you know, when I when I look at other fields, like um, sometimes I'm, I'm I, I have the misfortune of reading a nonfiction book and it's got all these like lessons for how to succeed in business. And I'm like, oh, God, this is garbage. Just anecdotes, just just terrible anecdotes. They don't even know what data is. Um, and yet I know there are a lot of docs who are like, well, the only way to fight anecdote is anecdote. So they want to tell anecdotes on the other side. And I'm like, I don't know if that's, I mean, this is my bias, which is like, I think what you want is to like, you need a public education system so people walk out of it and understand how do you think about claims that you're told. And and if you just want to fight anecdote with anecdote, you're just catering to, I think, the lowest common denominator, which is people are never going to understand how we make sense of data claims. And so I, I actively try not to do that. And like, I'm not going to fight you anecdote with anecdote. I don't like it. But Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is an effective fighting tool. I wonder how you think about that. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, certain kinds of evidence that we share are just much more compelling mm. to humans than kinds of evidence. And, you know, data ought to be more compelling, but personal stories just are, I mean, they move us, right? They change our beliefs in very effective ways. I recently um, heard a talk and maybe since I can't remember the names of the authors, maybe I can send you the yeah. link later. And this I thought was really fascinating. What they did was looked at a whole set of different beliefs surrounding vaccines um, and saw how they were, they tested how they were causally linked to each other. So they'd ask people like, do you hold all these beliefs? And they sort of set up a causal model of like how this belief influenced that belief. But it included things like, um, you know, vaccines cause autism, but also things like not vaccinating can cause harm. Uh, you know, not vaccinating could lead your child to infect another child, beliefs like that. And then the idea was that what you do is you don't intervene on the belief about vaccines and autism. You intervene on the belief about all the harm that can be caused by not right. vaccinating. The right. story you tell is about the child who wasn't vaccinated and who got whooping cough yeah. and who died at right. a young age, right? That kind of story, which um, allows you to use this kind of more compelling evidence. It also allows you to avoid the kind of sticky, fighty polarization moment uh, where you are fighting about a belief that everyone's kind of already entrenched on, right? And I thought this was a really promising approach. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that definitely resonates with me. And it, uh, I mean, it might become very timely if we have a COVID vi vaccine in the next eight to 18 months, and there's mm -hmm. going to be a big faction of people who don't want to get it. And you might need to come up with a clever way to change their tune. 
Um, and it kind of resonates with some of my own experience as a clinician. Uh, I just give you one anecdote. You know, uh, I once had somebody with, I'm going to disguise this, had somebody with um, a problem uh, that the treatment, uh, the curative treatment was sort of like a, a little bit of radiotherapy, a little bit of radiation is going to cure this problem. And this person told me um, they don't want to do it. Um, they want to instead get high dose vitamin C. What do you think about that, doc? And I was like, oh boy, what do I think about high-dose vitamin C? And I was like, you know, in my line of work, you don't always have a curative treatment. So I was so happy that I had a curative treatment for this person. Um, so, you know, one, I think this person's actually quite lucky to even have such an option. Um, and to turn it down for high-dose vitamin C, which is just total, uh, not going to do anything. Um, I know it's not going to do anything. It's not even plausible. There's no studies, you know, all these reasons why I don't think it's going to do anything. Um, it was promoted by a foolish person. Um, okay, so, but I was like, how am I going to change this person's mind? And I thought about it. And then I was like, okay, I know, I know how I'm going to do it. And so I go in there and then I was like, um, look, um, I was like, um, why, why do you want high dose vitamin C? And I know they're going to say something that a lot of people say, which is it's natural. It's just natural. It's, I don't want something that's unnatural. I just want more of what's natural. And I was like, let me put it to you this way. High dose vitamin C is to the orange what radiotherapy is to the sun. It's just a concentrated version of the good stuff of the sun, and this is just a concentrated version of the good stuff of the orange. And the difference is, this in this case, it's the sun. It's a sun problem. You need a little bit more sun. And this person was like, ah, oh, I see that. Okay, I, I so I, I don't know if that was, I, I think it's technically accurate. It is a concentrate. it is a selected form of radiation. Um, but uh, but I guess, so that was kind of how I approached it. And that's, a, you know, that's an anecdote. That uh, that was one. Um, but I, I'm, I'm often fascinated by this idea of like what is natural because as a cancer doctor it comes up a lot people want natural things they don't want unnatural things and sometimes what I also do is go through somebody's like life and point out that they are already accepting a lot of unnatural things from the you know four times a face cream that we apply in the morning to the shampoo we use in our hair to our toothbrush product to you know all the all the foods we eat that are like tons of ingredients mm. and chemicals so that's all fine and good but now is the moment you're going to draw the line and say you only want things that are occur naturally in these concentrations i was like it's a strange time so i wonder i i mean i haven't studied if any of these tactics are are useful and and maybe it's not that exactly what i say but the fact that you know i'm sitting in the room with somebody and like obviously show that i care about them and maybe that's what's changing their mind but you know i think mm. that that's kind of the things that we try in medicine yeah, so, I mean, one thing that's just so difficult and I think is an ongoing issue that almost everyone faces in the age of social media is that you know people, you encounter people with false beliefs and who people who've already dug in their heels about them, right? They've already decided what they believe. They've probably already had other people argue with them about it. They might be kind of angry. They might have been treated badly by other people. So people who aren't going to kind of easily be corrected, right? And yet, who might really need it, right? Who might not be vaccinating their child, who might be refusing cancer treatments, um, who might be harming themselves and others. And what do you do? And we all who have been in this situation know that a lot of the things that seem like the obvious answer don't work. So presenting another study showing that vaccines are safe doesn't work. Uh, Often, you know, getting pissed off about it and being like, you're being a fool doesn't yeah, work, right. right? Oh, I've tried that. Um, no, yeah, right. That doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. My uncles and I, we've, we've had at it, you know, but yeah. that, that's not change anyone's mind. <laughs> um, it's very difficult. You can't always change people's mind. But 
when you when it's really important and you're willing to take the time, something that seems to be sort of your best bet is to try to go at it calmly and to use um, tactics where you um, build trust with people. So as a doctor, I'm sure you're very used to using that kind of strategy, interacting with other people. Um, but to say, you know, so if I were talking to someone who wasn't, who was an anti-vaxxer, I might say like, I'm a mother too. I understand very well how scary it is the idea that something like this could really harm your child, your like precious baby, right? Um, I understand that fear and I understand how scary it is to vaccinate. You know, I cried when I first mm, took my baby. Good, yeah. Um, so build trust, show like you're a, per you're a person like them and the kind of person who they might be able to trust also. Um, and like, you know, use that trust to try to build a bridge of understanding. It also seems to be effective, um, according to some research, to make a lot of statements about yourself rather than the other person. Like, why do you believe this, you dummy? doesn't work. But here's why I ended up believing this, because I learned this, because I learned that, you know, bring someone through your kind of personal journey of coming to believe can maybe be more effective um, than just pushing them for what they believe. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's very well put. And, you know, it kind of something that, that I've long believed, which is that, you know, when it comes to health care and health, there are so many misleading claims. And the other thing you have to do as, I don't know, anybody in this space is to figure out what you're going to spend your time on fighting. And I think vaccines is an important thing to spend your time on. And I like to think of it in a few dimensions. One, um, does it just affect the person or affect other people as well? And their vaccines, obviously, it has effects for other people as well. Whereas, you know, things like um, whether or not somebody does acupuncture or cupping, things that I also kind of maybe raise an eyebrow at, I spend less time on because, you know, at the end of the day, it's their body and it's not gonna affect anyone else. The next thing I look at is like, who is shouldering the burden of the cost? Things that are, you know, we're all paying for through insurance premiums or sort of their societal payments and tax fit, taxes and insurance premiums. Uh, I spend more time on than things that people are paying out of pocket. So that's why I'm much more likely to go after the new cancer drug approval than, than, than this. Um, I think things where the participants are more amenable to like argument and reason, which is another reason that I always end up in like, you know, traditional medical spaces um, and things where the harms are greater. So things where, you know, uh, the harms and the risks to others are bigger. So um, the more invasive a procedure is potentially if it's unsupported, I'm going to spend more of my energies there than things like, you know, homeopathic medicines where at least they're probably not really harmful. There's not nothing in there anyway. Um, but that's just kind of like a, a rule of thumb kind of framework for just how do we prioritize our time in a sea of sort of, at least in healthcare, misinformation. And it's probably different depending on this field. No, I think that's really insightful. And I mean, as you're saying this, I realize I do the same thing. I spend a lot of time talking about climate change, yeah. no talking about astrology. Yes, I mean, yes, okay. Who cares right. if someone yeah. that, you know, cancer is guiding their actions this month? Um, it just doesn't hurt anything. The, cra right? the crab, you mean, not the, the disease. The, yeah, the, yes. the, the astrological <laughs> sign. Chosen astrological sign. <laughs> it's Sagittarius. Yes, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, that that's that's good. Um, okay, then the last thing I will talk to you about really quick before I let you go, because I know our time is running short, which is, um, you know, this recent paper you have, which is the dynamics of retraction in epistemic networks. Um, I wonder if you might give us the 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 summary of sort of what 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 is this paper and 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 what what are you finding 
Yeah, so we got really interested. I mean, as I've told you, but not any listeners, your work was some of the work that got us interested in this topic, basically failures of retraction and reversal. Mm. because as you're well aware, but probably many people don't know, there are a lot of cases where scientific findings get retracted for various reasons. So it turns out they were false, they were fraudulent, um, or they just get overturned or reversed, right? Someone finds out we thought that was true, that's not true. So there are all these cases where there's something that had basically good scientific evidence, there were grounds for believing it, people came to believe it, um, and then you have to reverse that belief somehow. But sort of time and again, people find out that retractions don't really work the way they ought to work, though. Retracted papers are often cited for years afterwards. Sometimes they're cited thousands of times after they've been retracted, and by people who don't seem to realize that the finding is no longer valid. Mm-hmm. We were really interested in that, and then we used this technique that we were talking about earlier, um, where we built network models to try to think about, okay, why might this happen? Why might it be that um, the finding gets retracted and a lot of people keep believing it. And even the original false claim keeps spreading further mm-hmm. in many cases. So what we thought about were, you know, sort of imagine a network, you have a belief that starts spreading through these links in the network, which is how beliefs do tend to spread. And then at some point, someone generates a retraction of this belief, a, a knowledge that it's not true. I mean, if you think about this, like, say the original author finds out that their work was wrong, right? And they say, never mind, it's retracted. They're saying that at one spot in the network, it doesn't necessarily change what's happening in other places in the network, right? Yes. Other people are mm-hmm. it, sharing it the exact same way they would have before. Right, right. What's happening with the original author. Right. Um, so it has so to that, spread from there to catch up, yeah. It has to sort of catch up. Uh, another thing is that if you think about the way beliefs spread in networks, they don't all spread the same way. And in particular, retraction often has, it's kind of hobbled because people don't usually share information about retractions unless they think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. And unless they think people already hold false beliefs right. and know the original false claim. So I don't just come up to someone and say, hey, did you hear that thing about COVID and HIV turned out not to be true? Mm-hmm. I think they thought it was true in the right, first place. Right, 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 It's It's so, less likely to be brought up, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, it, it's just not as relevant mm-hmm. as original false claims. It might be very relevant to say, like, hey, these people think COVID was engineered by using HIV. I, by the way, I usually say, when I say something as a false thing, I, I shouldn't be saying, that's not true. Everyone, that's not true. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah. Um, that is quite relevant just yeah. on its own without this context. So there's this little difference. Mm. Uh, One thing we find that's really interesting in the models, which we want to now look at in more empirical stuff to see does this happen in the real world, is that kind of paradoxically, sometimes retractions that happen later can be more effective because they're very relevant to more people. I see. So a false belief has been spreading for a long time and everyone holds it. The retraction is much more relevant and just more people share it, more people are interested in it. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's a kind of little surprising. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, obviously it has a lot of um, overlap with the things I think a lot about, which is, um, you know, things that we do for a long time that end up contradicted and then why we don't always go back, we don't don't always change our practice right away. Uh, Many providers continue to believe the erroneous thing for a long period of time. Um, mm-hmm. and, and perhaps what you're getting at is sort of, um, 
uh, making sense of why that happens in terms of the, sort of this model. And that would be great to kind of test it empirically. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be a good good way to look at it. Um, you know, there's there's a nice paper by John Yonides called Contradicted and Initially Stronger Effects from JAMA, like 2000 and I think 2004, 2005-ish. And he has a bunch of claims that were contradicted. And then you can still trace the citations for the, the, the original claim that was wrong. And it take like seven years for those citations to dissipate for where people got the message. So it's, it speaks a lot to exactly kind of what you're modeling. Yeah, I mean, another thing we've been wanting to do is test some of this because most of the studies done on this kind of effect have been done looking at scientific data sets, right? Yeah. Like networks of scientists. Um, we've been, you know, applying for grants to try to study retraction or reversal on social media. Oh, uh, yeah. Gets going and then a reversal gets going. So even like in the U.S., you know, back in March, I was seeing tons of people sharing stuff like masks don't do anything for COVID. Right bother with the masks. And then that idea essentially was retracted or right. reversed. People started then trying to spread the belief like, no, instead do wear yeah, a mask. Right, right. And for example, that in, yeah, everyday social media. Uh, that would be a great one to study. And the other one I think is um, some of the same people who in January, the same experts I see on CNN now were making the point of, um, you know, well, the flu has many more deaths than COVID. And, uh, and then uh, some of us were saying, you know, that's at the present moment, but it's a very noisy data set and that could explode in a second. Um, but, you know, that's another thing that, you know, people quickly change their tune on. But yeah, the I think that that's a great example of sort of, I bet some of these companies you could do it at like a very high level of data sophistication and get the answer to that question, you know, really well if you had access to some of that data. Mm. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on and I don't want to take up too much of your time. And also my battery is down to 4%. So I better, <laughs> I better wrap it up. Um, so I want to, you know, I want to thank you for doing this really interesting work. Um, I think it was a couple years ago, you had a nice article in Scientific America um, that you talked about misinformation and I will steer, I will steer listeners towards that article. Um, and, um, you know, this recent piece in the Boston review, I thought was really stellar. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what you're doing is really important and helping us all make sense of, you know, probably one of the most important sort of phenomena of today, which is why are so many people, why do we believe what we believe and where does it come from? And why are we often wrong? Um, so thanks so much for coming on, Dr. O'Connor. My pleasure. And let me, you know, throw a thanks back at you for all the work you've been doing, you know, to try to improve people's medical beliefs. Oh, thanks so much. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>